Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. All right, this week, it's time again for The Rendezvous, our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we have General David Deptula. Hey, Happy New Year to all. Sir, always great getting your insight on these things. Uh, We also have Anthony Laser Lazarski. Happy New Year. Great to be back. Laser, welcome back to the show. We also have Todd Sledgeharmer with us. Good to see everyone. Glad to be here. Sledge, always great getting your insight as well. Laser and Sledge are our Washington experts who we have as part of the Rendezvous crew. So again, always great having you guys on the show. And we also have got Tim Ryan with us today from the Mitchell Space Team. As you know, Tim joined us uh, this past summer and has a long career in uniform working space operations. So Tim, welcome to the Aerospace Advantage. Hey, Happy New Year. Glad to be here. Thanks. Okay, Laser and Sledge, let's get started with you. This past week, the country was fixated on events that were uh, transpiring in the House of Representatives as uh, Representative McCarthy sought to get the necessary vote to become Speaker of the House. So bottom line, were any compromises made that have implications for defense? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one that played out there was this agreement to cap FY24 spending at FY22 enacted levels. And then immediately everybody looked at, okay, well, that means that each of the, you know, the 12 appropriations bills were going to get capped at this lower level and immediately came back out and said, no, what they're trying to do. And if you look at, you know, if you look at FY23 enacted at 1.7, FY22 enacted $1.5 trillion. So it's a $0.2 trillion difference. And that's what they're going to have to make up, but it doesn't cookie cut across the board. Now that's where the fight's going to be. And and again, that was just one of the compromises, but that's, we're going to be one of the fun fights going to be. That's what impacts defense the most because now we're going to be at a lower level and we're going to have to fight you know the the members are going to have to fight to keep defense spending higher and then cut non-defense and and that that's what's going to happen between the house and the senate republicans and democrats and we're just going to have to see it play out but they did come out and say no actually we're trying to increase defense not decrease defense but if you're increasing overall spending we just have to figure out how that's going to work out there were some other compromises too but no direct impact on defense yeah, I jump in there too. Uh, you know, while I agree with with Laser, I, I think really, you know, what what they determine the top line defense spending to be is going to be where the rub is. But I think, you know, my 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 brother just retired as a high school civics teacher in Northern New York, and I told him, hey, no matter what you're teaching your students, it's wrong. That's not the way government <laughs> operates in reality. And I think the most significant thing, and this is going to seem very arcane to most of the listeners out there, but the, the fact that the Freedom Caucus was able to extract three members on the Rules Committee is going to be, I think that's going to be probably the most significant thing other than the defense top line number. And I, I, I say that because what what's really going to happen is, you know, very few people understand what the Rules Committee does in the House of Representatives. And they're the ones that determine how a bill goes to the floor and what the rules of debate are. 
And, and I think they, the fact that you're going to have three of the Freedom Caucus members on the Rules Committee is going to really fundamentally alter the way bills go to the floor and the way they're debated there. What I think you will see is a lot more of individual bills, appropriations in particular, that are considered in regular order. So they will be standalone bills that get considered by themselves, and there will be a lot of amendments. I think that's going to slow things down significantly on the House floor. And I think that's probably going to be the most meaningful impact of, of, of what Speaker McCarthy had to concede to the Freedom Caucus. Yeah, and I'll jump in. I mean, you know, Sledge and I were both up on the Hill and we were both up there during regular order. And we watched, I mean, we actually had full markup. We did subcommittees. We brought each bill to the floor. We passed each bill, went to conference, didn't know we slammed through an omnibus to get through. So everything Sledge said is correct. It's going to take longer. That is a concern because puts us on a CR. Can we get stuff through at the end of the year? There was a, there's a quote and I, you know, was, and I'm sure Sledge, I don't know if Sledge was watching it or you guys, but you know, I used to watch, uh, run home and try to watch ESPN. Now I watch C-SPAN, but we're watching this whole speaker election go through on the 15th round. And there's a quote by Churchill that says, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms of government that have been tried from time to time. So, yeah, it, it's going to be messy. You know, I'm, I'm going to stay optimistic, but it's going to definitely take more time to get these bills to get through. But, you know, having amendments is a good thing because people get inputs. Yeah, thanks for that. And I, I want to stick with both of you here for a second. 2023 is shaping up to be a very different year than when we began 22. We obviously had an election. Russia's invasion of Ukraine will hit the one year mark. The public now knows what the B-21 looks like and the F-35 contract, which we'll discuss shortly, looks to continue highly advantageous pricing. Also got a new Space Force leader and concerns regarding a recession are pronounced. Talk us through what you expect to see as top concerns and priorities when it comes to Congress and defense. And we understand the Senate may have very different lists in the House. They're aligned, but different. I mean, we talked about in the past, we still have, you know, Reed, we got Wicker that's come in, you know, and then we have Rogers and Smith for authorization. And then we go look at appropriations with, you know, Kane Grager, Rosa DeLauro, and then we have Murray and Collins. And, you know, so again, very pro-defense experienced individuals. But when you start looking at priorities, you know, good thing everybody's got to focus on China. There is a focus on defense, but a debate on defense between defense and non-defense spending. So I think that that's what you're going to see played out. And there's going to be a definite support for Ukraine, but over on the House side, there's going to be more oversight. But again, I think there's still going to be more support. And I know we're going to talk about Ukraine some more. I think there's going to be continued focus on space and there's going to be continued focus on building our capabilities in the United States to include industrial base and supply chain. But the big issue out there is going to be funding and how all this impacts it. And then you can add inflation on it. So there's going to be a disagreement in funding, which is going to have an impact on our overall priorities and funding for our weapon systems. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that was, you know, then in 2023, all of a sudden, the national interest did not change. So I, I think, you know, that's going to drive everything, whether it be the House Select Committee on a China and 
And that that is more than just defense. I mean, there's other elements of national power that will come into that. But I, I agree with what Laser has said on both China and Ukraine there. But there there still is going to be some overarching natural and national interest that, that shapes our, our national policy. The big thing in 2023, I think that's going to have to happen is the Republicans in the House are going to have to show that they can govern. And that's going to be the most important thing that you'll see there. I'm going to throw, I just want to throw, there's debt. I mean, we haven't, I mean, it's sitting out there. So it's going to be in August, September. I mean, we're really not sure. Uh, they may have, have to enact some processes earlier so that we can have funding through August. But you're going to see that play out. And, and that's going to impact what's going on because it's going to take the attention away. Big tech. And then there, there's still going to be a lot of support for research, development, innovation. Again, trying to take that leap and, and get the next better weapon system as we compete against China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. All right, General Deptula, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Well, you know, I concur with the laser and Sledge's commentary, but I'd kind of summarize this up by, by making the point that Congress must maintain its support to NATO as well as to the Ukrainians. At the same time, I think it's important to understand that that support's not just about Ukraine. It's also about China. Now, last week, I participated in the CSIS rollout of their report on a series of war games that they hosted and that I participated in simulating a PRC invasion of Taiwan. And while the majority of the blue teams eventually prevailed in halting the Chinese invasion, that only occurred after massive attrition on both sides that had implications for significant negative strategic consequences, not just for China and Taiwan, but for us too in the U.S. So my biggest takeaway from that whole series was that we need to focus on deterring from invading Taiwan in the first place. And the resolve to defeat the raw aggression of Russia in invading Ukraine is a huge deterrent to China. So consequently, we must assure that Ukraine prevails. Now, why, with respect to some of the positions that new congressional members or some new congressional members are taking on, you know, their aspirations to reduce expenditures for defense, you know, I, I'd like to remind the members taking those positions that while there'll always be debates between how much the federal government should spend on guns versus butter, taken back to first principles, that being the preamble of the Constitution, which very clearly states that our government exists first to, quote, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, unquote. And given the priorities of today's Congress, one might think that the words provide and promote were exchanged. The, the extremes, and this is what I think is, is important, the extremes of both parties have been acting in manners that are injurious to the defense of our nation. And I believe sincerely, and it's kind of backed up with what both Laser and Sledge have said, that the responsible members of both parties will prevail in overcoming the extreme positions of their respective parties. And I certainly hope that they do, because otherwise we're going to lose the next war. With respect to prioritization of funding requirements that I believe the Congress should focus on, I want to remind them that the Air Force is the smallest, the oldest, and the least ready it's ever been in its history. And the reason for that is that for the last 30 years in a row, the Air Force has been at the bottom of DOD's resourcing list. 
and the Navy and the Army have received greater funding than the Air Force in every one of those 30 years. That situation needs to be reversed or the Air Force is literally gonna crash and burn when called upon to fight in our next major regional contingency. All right, Tim, what about you? Space issues you think Congress should prioritize? Yeah, thanks. You know, I agree, again, with the the comments that the other three have put out there. Space, again, going into its fourth year, I think that it's very easy to look at from a budget line, $1.7 billion above the the request. And so people start to look at, at some of those numbers and say that Congress does not forget that a good chunk of that plus up that's been in there, just like last year, that plus up was for the Navy Army SATCOM consolidation, which was needed is that the transfer of SDA, the Space Development Agency this year, that's where a lot of that's coming in. So from the budget side of it, I, I think that that's, you know, something that we got to be able to be, be aware of. Policy, you know, that the the direction that they've given, there's a big direction for the SECDEF and the DNI this year to make a, a public unclassified strategy that starts to talk about how they're going to defend and protect on-orbit satellites from adversaries. I think that that's a great first start. That gets to what you had talked about, General Deptulum, when we start to talk about being able to deter China and Russia, if we can't tell them or show them how we're going to deter them, then I don't know that we're really deterring them. So that's a good first step. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. Again, the Space Force has a an ongoing issue that they've been trying to tackle with things being overclassified or, or staying in the classified world. So that'll be interesting to see. One thing that I wish, and we've talked about it here at Mitchell, they would have taken on is being able to get after the space guard issue. They kind of punted that a little bit, although they they did direct a, a report to be done by the Secretary of the Air Force to identify, okay, if you want to go after this single component that the administration has been lobbying for, then you need to be able to, to lay out what provisions are going to be needed. How would that be implemented? Actually put some some flesh on on those bones and not just talk about it. So I think that that's going to be good, and it'll finally be able to give that that opportunity to be able to compare what this single component would look like, how much it would cost, so on and so forth, versus utilizing a space car, which is something that we've talked about that we need to be happening. All right, General Deptula, one of the news items to break over the holiday season was the government and Lockheed Martin agreed upon pricing and buy quantities for the next lots of F-35. And for those keeping track, that's lots 15 and 16 with an option for lot 17. And, And this was big news because everyone was expecting the potential for a major price jump given that more technology was going into the jets and inflation has been impacting everything. And the U.S. and the government really dropped uh, buy quantities last year. But as it turns out, the price is actually below the inflation rate increases we've seen. So the jets are hovering between 69 and 70 million, depending on what specific lots are in place. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, my first thought is this is a big deal because it covers the jets that start to see the beginning of Block 4 enter the inventory. So when we heard the Air Force last year say they only wanted Block 4 jet, they're now here. Money obligated by the Hill in the FY24 defense bill and beyond buys jets that are in the Block 4 category. Now that said, it's important and a bit confusing to understand that there's really no such thing as a unilateral Block 4 jet because it's a rolling set of capability insertions over the rest of the decade. What matters to make it all work is for the core hardware to be on the jet to accept the software, not unlike your smartphone getting an update. The biggest step in this regard is a central processing computer, which is now up and running. 
And while there'll be some additional hardware that goes on the jets in subsequent years, the computer was the big one because this allows the jet to accept a broad range of software-based capability upgrades that's tied to the block four in the out years. So <laughs> to put all that detail in kind of 60,000 foot speak, what the Air Force is buying and the other services that are in the program are fundamentally more capable jets. And in the add in the, the add in the inflation rate, supply chain challenges, and the US government reducing the number of jets that it's been buying in recent years to the equation. And it's amazing that Lockheed Martin is producing jets that are priced between 69 and 70 million per A model F-35, depending upon the lot in question. That's below the rate of inflation. You can't even say that about a dozen eggs when it comes to price stability. And these jets include more capability than previous versions that were much more expensive. Now, Canada joining the program further adds momentum. That's the true strategic, one of the principal strategic advantages of the F-35. We now have 17 nations that are operating the same fifth gen capability. And adversaries need to think about that and that strategic advantage that those partnerships provide. That's, it's a huge part of the equation. So now, as we look to the future, the real issue for the US government comes to production capacity, given the need to boost Air Force fighter buys to a minimum of 72 a year, just to stop then halt the decline in the age of our geriatric Air Force, plus growing allied commitments, we need to make the necessary investments to buy more F-35s in a given year. And that will allow Lockheed Martin to produce more F-35s in a given year because the demand is there and the recapitalization pressure is immense. Look, I, we talked a bit this about this before, but you saw what happened in Okinawa. We didn't retire those F-15Cs because it was an elective option. We retired them because they're simply not maintainable anymore. The Air Force is getting way too small and we have to absolutely add more capacity as soon as possible to meet the demands of the national security strategy or we're not gonna be able to execute it. It is simply that logical, gotta buy more airplanes. And given the latest pricing, it is an absolute bargain and we ought to double the buy on an annual basis. <laughs> I'll just jump in real quick, 100% agree. You know, we want, I, it's it's almost as if F-35 is hitting its stride and now getting out to each of our nations, our adversaries are watching it. And if you look up at Congress and everything going, everything that goes wrong, every incident that happens get amplified. I think it's the most scrutinized aircraft I've ever seen, especially being up here. But again, with the prices, the way they're going, with the capabilities it's bringing, yeah, I think it's just gonna, it won't do anything except help us as we try to push it. But I agree with General Deptula, we, we need more aircraft. Now, how do we fit that in with whatever budgets that Sledge was talking about that we may be seeing in the future. Well, I would just say we can't repeat the mistake that we made with the F-22. When we finally get to the point where we've got a cost-effective platform, we decide that we're not going to buy it anymore. So we need to keep buying it there. The only thing that I would add that hasn't been discussed is 
there, there's been a lot of chatter both in the media and I know within the department of what the swap C requirements are for the block four TR3 airplane. So do we need a new propulsion solution? Do we need a new you know, power thermal management system? Those are things that the uh, the Air Force, the the JPO, the DOD, the all the you know the allied and partner nations are going to have to work through. But you know, at, at the end of the day, this is a very, this is a very very cost affordable capability. The number of countries that are doing their due diligence and decide that the F thirty five is the right capability for them to have is, I think, proof positive that this is the right direction to head, and we need to buy more faster. Yeah, it's a great point, Sledge. I mean, the fact that the Canadians are buying 88, the, the Swiss are buying them, the Finns are buying them, the Germans are buying them, all, all great indicators. And that's a fair comment on the power, you know, that that perhaps we can make a, we can do a podcast alone on that. There are some reasonable solutions on that as a way ahead, but let's save that for another time. All right, Tim, what should we be thinking about when it comes to space for 2023? We've got a new CSO and our adversaries keep pushing hard. Yes, they do keep pushing hard. As the Space Force goes into its fourth year, their 8,000 Guardians are faced with increasing threats from both Russia and China. We've seen this play out in the Ukraine flight where space assets have been, we've seen the, the big role that they have taken in providing communications and the intelligence that Ukraine has needed all the while, Russia has continued to try to jam these capabilities. Let's not forget that that comes on the heels of a destructive Russian ASAT test that happened in November of 2021 that created a massive debris field that now threatens and continues to threaten on-orbit assets, creating the Space Force to have to track now over 47,000 objects in space. China continues to develop its strategic support force where they're now actually taking that within that force. And now we're in, they're integrating space, cyber, electronic warfare, information warfare, and looking at it from a, a holistic perspective and point of view. They are very, very clear on how they look at space superiority. They want to be able to control the space enabled information sphere. They want to be able to deny the United States, the ability for space-based information gathering and communications. Those are the very tenants of what space is going to provide in a, in a JADC2 environment. So we have to not lose sight of that, continue to be able to, to develop and keep that into the architecture design, as well as the Space Force, as it continues to grow, they must start to develop and talk about the offensive and defensive capabilities to counter this. Now, we can't wait for it at some time down the road. I think you're going to continue to see the Space Force develop and grow the Space Force Component Commander role. They started in Indo-PACOM and Central Command this year, as well as U.S. Forces Korea. I think you're going to see that grow into other combat commands. That's going to continue to be able to help normalize space operations by coordinating space capabilities throughout those combat commands, plans, and executions. But I think that, that the other piece that we have to look at as, as you go across all these different things, and whether it is taking on new missions that SDA is putting up and taking those demonstrations and, and making them operational or standing up component commands and, and the staffs that, that come with that, 8,000 guardians are just not enough to be able to get that done. So per, on the personnel side of it, I think that that's going to be something that the Space Force is going to have to take this year and start to lay out a, a force construct and a force design that they can show what they actually need to be able to execute the threats and the missions that they're assigned against them. Sledge, Laser, uh, and General Deptula, any thoughts to add? 
Yeah, I, I, the one thing I've seen over time, you know, as as we've finally acknowledged that space is contested, as we finally acknowledge the risks and what our adversaries are doing up there, it starts the education process. And and what I've seen from my time on the Hill and then now off the Hill, more and more members getting educated, both unclassed but more classified briefings so that they actually understand what's going on. And I've been working with, and as I'm sure Sledge has too, but we're working with a lot of members to ensure we continue this education process. It's But it's there's got to be a public piece, and then there's got to be this classified piece with the members, because that's the only way to continue to have advocacy, which Space Force does have up on the Hill, but we need to grow that to do everything we just discussed. Yeah, I would I would kind of throw out maybe a, this is a bit of a chicken and the egg discussion here. And I, I'm going to go back about 200 years in history. And, you know, if you go back to the writings of Alfred Thayer Mahan, influence of sea power on history, you know, and, and you know, it, you, you can take about a six inch book and distill it down into that the fleet follows commerce. And and really, this was you know, establishing the purpose of the Royal Navy was to make sure that the British Empire was a sea power nation and that their commerce survived because of the Royal Navy. I think we need to use that analogy in terms of what we're doing in space. And and so we need to, everything that we approach in space from a national security perspective needs to be based in what's our, what's the commercial application or how does this enable commerce in space? And the number one thing that we need to look at, and I would say this is more, you know, on orbit logistics or whatever we do to operate, you know, in, in Leo, I, I would say, you know, Leo, Mio and Geo, but then we can talk lunar stuff probably in a later podcast there, but we need to be able to scale whatever we're doing. So whether it be a commercial activity or whether it be the, the, the reason death row of the space force, this is all about commerce. And, and we need to, that, that I think needs to be the guiding principle of, of what we do. Yeah, let me summarize my thoughts here with, I mean, there's great observations, by the way, but here's the bottom line. The Space Force is underfunded, it's undermanned, and it's underconsolidated when it comes to the magnitude, let me put it this way, as opposed to magnitude, the number of other organizations out there who have a say in space. And until we overcome those obstacles, the Guardians and General Saltzman are going to do their best. But I don't think that um, we're paying to the degree of attention to the resources, the personnel, or the organization that's necessary to get us the kind of effort in space that we need to be focused on. Okay, we talk about this all the time, but what are your thoughts on Ukraine? Over the weekend, we saw former SecDef Bob Gates and former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice call for a boost in what we're providing to the Ukrainians. So I think we agree with the sentiment, but, you know, might call for a different set of capabilities to offer. So General Jeptula, let's get started with you. Okay. So Slick, actually, I had the good fortune of having a long conversation, both in the public version of our aerospace nation and then behind behind the scenes with recently retired Supreme Allied Commander Europe, Todd Walters. And we had the discussion with respect to support to Ukraine and weapons that matter. And he had some very informative observations that sometimes we in the United States tend to and not forget, but not think about, but they're at the front of his considerations while he was the commander 
of the military side of NATO. And that's that there are 30 countries that are involved here. And that one of the strategics that NATO has is the unified nature of all the moves that it makes. And on the combat aircraft front, while yes, eventually the Ukrainians are gonna need to shift to westernized air force, all 30 of those nations are not necessarily there yet. So I, I think that's an important perspective to consider, but at the same time, that has to be balanced with what can be provided to the Ukrainians will give them an advantage over the Russians. I think the other piece that is an important one and has received a lot of attention and has gone to the Ukrainians' advantage is the use of drones, remotely potted aircraft, uninhabited aircraft, whatever you would like to call them, and that we need to get beyond some of the, the bureaucratic policy roadblocks of getting MQ-9s, the MQ, you know, there's a bunch of MQ-9 Block 1s that are sitting in crates in the United States right now that could, in fact, lessen any possibility of escalation if they were used only in an intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance role. And here's what I mean by that. If you have the Ukrainians operating them, they're, they're, you, you, you do not have this issue of any kind of operations being conducted by NATO or U.S. forces. So that's something I think that NATO needs to move forward on. But I encourage everyone to watch that interview. General Walters had some excellent perspectives particularly in some of the non-kinetic aspects of what NATO and U.S. forces have been assisting the Ukrainians with. Yeah, I would I would double tap on that. I, I thought that was one of the better Mitchell Institute events yesterday. And, and likewise, I would encourage all the listeners out there to go back and and watch the recording. The one thing that I wanted to add, and this was my key takeaway, Tim hit upon this a little bit early when he was talking about space superiority, but several times General Walters talked about domain superiority and he broke it out across the five different domains, you know, the, the maritime or naval, air, land, cyber, and, you know, quite simply, and then there was an argument between, you know, do we need to maintain superiority or just denial? What, where do we need to be on that spectrum? And, you know, and I would go back to kind of the war college definition here that, you know, the, the, the purpose of superiority is to, to gain and maintain freedom to operate in a given domain and deny your adversary the same. And no matter what we do with Ukraine, that's what needs to go into our calculus. And when we start talking about specific platforms, specific systems, I think we're getting a little bit too tactical. What we need to focus on is if there's a, if there's a stalemate or we've reached a status quo, what can we do to help the Ukrainians change the status quo so it's in the favor of the Ukrainians and the larger, you know, Western powers in NATO? And I think that's going to be incredibly important when we decide, you know, when we, we do the national policy implications discussions of do we send them advanced fighters? Do we send them air defense systems? Do, you know, do we send them tanks? Those are the discussions that we need to be having at the national level. And I hope that's the framework that that our national leaders are looking at this through.
The only thing I would add is uh, we're, we're in this for the long haul. They just had Senator Reid, Senator King gave back. Senator King said that uh, you know what he observed is essentially trench warfare. And then we've heard the latest intel that it looks like, at least from Ukrainian intelligence, that the Russians are mobilizing another 500,000 troops to take some type of spring offensive. So this is a long-term war. You know, we, you've heard the comments back and forth between Putin and the Ukraine president You know about a peace. There, there, there is no peace. You know, Ukraine's not going to give up territory, and Putin's not backing down. So, our everything that General Deptula said, Sledge says, we've got to look at this in the long term and what we're supplying. There's another meeting on the 20th of January. The defense is going to be there with the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, and hopefully, they go ahead and look at the needs, what we need to provide. I believe ultimately we're going to be providing the air assets that the Ukrainians need. The only concern. Concern, you know, General Tula, I just keep hearing on the MQ-9 is if one gets shot down, what's the intel that they gain, the Russians gain off of that that asset? And that seems to be continually the the one thing that holds it back. I don't think there's a concern about letting them use it for ISR. But I think more education, I, I, I do think Congress is supportive and I think they'll continue to support. And we just need to keep coming up, coming up and, and advocating and pushing them. We just had another, what, $3.75 billion package going out. A lot vehicles and ammunition. Yeah, listen, without getting into details, I mean, that's a nice bureaucratic maneuver that someone in OSD policy is making, but we've had plenty of MQ-9 shot down in Iraq and Afghanistan. True. And, you know, if there's a particular piece of equipment kit that you don't want on the, to get in a bad guy's hands, then don't put it on the airplane. You know, the optical IR balls that are used on that system are not the highest technologies and there are no surprises there. So I really think that's nothing more than a, a, a bureaucratic ploy. But be that as that's a whole nother subject area. Well, and it may be something that we can bring up to the Hill and push it that way and, yeah. and lay it out because I don't think it's been laid out properly. You bet. Okay. Defense industrial capacity is one of the biggest issues right now, and we're really happy it's getting attention in the mainstream. So this has been an issue for decades, and we've talked about it a bunch. So where do you see this going in 2023? I have to say, I've watched it for decades, watching our industrial base contract, losing mid to lower pieces of our industrial base. And then as we buy less equipment, as we as we become a smaller military, that defense industrial base shrinks even more. And then with increased costs, be it inflation or lower budget, I while I know I've heard the talk, I hear the focus, and I believe that, you know, Congress is trying and DOD is trying to do what they can to keep the industrial base strong or rebuild the industrial base. I haven't seen any positive movement where it makes me feel comfortable of where we're going. I hear the words, but I just don't see the positive actions where we have a more robust and sustainable and redundant industrial base. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. The bottom line here is, you know, in, industry needs predictability and, and that's going to require investment and commitment on the part of the U.S. government there if they want to have a resilient defense industrial base. You know, I, I remember back in the early 90s when I was flying F-16s and, you know, we were going, you know, performance-based logistics and just-in-time logistics were all of a sudden becoming the thing. And 
I, I guess this really is a trade-off between just in time and just in case. And if if you want to have you know just because capabilities, then you need to invest. And I, I guess if I if I could put this a fine point on this is you know industry needs predictability to be able to invest in capacity. And if DOD is not willing to invest in defense industrial base capacity or resilience, they've got to accept the risk of that. Um, but this is not something that the U.S. government has to do on their own. We have allied partners. Many of them bring specialized capabilities and are willing to invest themselves. But there has to be a demand signal. There has to be some return on investment for industry to provide the resilience that our defense industrial base requires. Yeah, hey, let me jump in here because... Man, both Laser and Sledge hit it from my perspective. Laser in his pragmatic assessment that he doesn't see a lot changing as we move forward, which is unfortunate because I had hoped that Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have been a white wake-up call for the United States Congress and military to, holy smokes, look at the expenditures of munition. And would we if we got involved in a major regional conflict, whether it be in the Pacific or whether it be in Europe, could we handle this? And the short answer is no. We're out of anti-maritime, anti-ship weapons in less than a week. This does not bode well for either deterrence or our ability if we get involved in the conflict. Relative to what was also said by Sledge, just-in-time logistics, I hope, is dead. It was a business entrepreneur's model applied to the Department of Defense to achieve efficiency. Ladies and gentlemen, warfare's not about efficiency. It's about winning. And if you don't have the ammunition and the armaments to continue to a conclusion where you win, you lose. And the cost and the efficiency of losing a war is a hell of a lot more costly than what it cost to build the inventory of weapons and munitions to deter a conflict. So as many folks have said, the only thing more expensive than a first-rate military is a second-rate military. All right. Thanks, everyone, so much for your time today. That's all we have time for. General Abtula, Laser, Sledge, Tim, it's been awesome catching up. Looking forward to 2023 with you all. Yeah, great. Have a wonderful aerospace power kind of day. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks a lot. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.